This is episode 110 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm talking with Lisa D. Stewart. Lisa is the author of The Big Quiet, One Woman's Horseback Ride Home, which is a memoir about a 500-mile solo horseback trip she took at the age of 54 in 2012 on her horse, Chief. Her first trip 3,000 miles over seven and a half months with her former husband in 1982 gave her the skills and courage to finally take the trip she had dreamed about since she was a girl, alone with one horse through the Midwest. Lisa also is a poet and commercial writer in Prairie Village, Kansas. She specializes in research and business planning for agricultural companies and urban nonprofit organizations. Between 1984 and 1999, she and her former husband created and grew OrthoFlex Saddle Company after their 3,000-mile horseback trip with five horses taught them about the relationship between saddles and the biomechanics and soundness of the horse. The couple produced and sold more than 25,000 patented saddles with accessories in more than 30 countries. Lisa has published more than 100 articles on the topic of saddle fit. She currently is completing a book about the relationship between saddles, equine biomechanics, and proper palpitation techniques for soreness. She has two grown children in Kansas City and lives with her husband and their dog, Patty. Saddle up for a conversation about long riding a horse alone across the Midwest, overcoming the past, and saddle anatomy discoveries. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I have Lisa D. Stewart on the show. We're going to talk about some fascinating, long horseback journeys that Lisa's taken and a bunch of other great stuff. But welcome to the show, Lisa. Hi. Hey, Carly. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to get to meet you in person. <laughs> it's always the best to meet technically in person. I, lo- I love the fact that we have this technology where we can actually talk to each other and meet each other and develop really wonderful relationships. And uh, how I always like to start out the conversations is asking, Lisa, what is your relationship to horses? How did your love affair begin? I have always said that I was born with a horse-loving gene. I have no idea I, how. I was born uh, in Detroit. My parents didn't know anything about horses. Um, my dad had, had been around horses in rural Oklahoma when he was a boy, but that was it. And it was just a drive that I always had. I had to have horse books and, and um, horse stories and model horses <laughs> and calendars. And I think that I just forced the universe to manifest a horse for me um, when I was about eight years old. And, and that's kind of how I feel it happened. My dad happened to move to Oklahoma City for a job at Aero Commander, and he made friends with a man who had land in Oklahoma, and therefore there was a place to put the horse. 
not that we would be able to stable a horse or something. So the stars aligned and I got honey. And by the way, this is her tooth. Oh my goodness. <laughs> her ne- you have a necklace on that's made from her tooth. Wow. Yes. Yes. So she's always close to me mm. and uh, horses are always close to me and they're kind of good totem. <laughs> that's wonderful. And, you know, that's the thing. Like, how do we remember our heart horses, you know, as they move on? Like, what can we do? Jewelry, their hair, uh, you know, marker, favorite place. That's really lovely. Now, uh, you were lucky enough to get a horse when you were younger and you're like so many of us, we're just born with it and our parents have no idea what to do with it, but it surrounds them. And and then we move into riding lessons and riding. You still have horses and and horses have been a part of your life as you've grown into adults. Do you want to talk a little bit about the horses perhaps in your life now or adult horses? Sure. We moved to rural uh, Oklahoma when I was in junior high. So that I got honey back and then my dad bought me another horse who that was young and untrained. Mm. And we just continued to live in the country and then we moved to Missouri. So I moved both horses there and I ended up marrying a farmer, uh, which is part of the book because I did not stay married to the farmer. So that's part of the story and, and part of the narrative. So I then met, um, after I was divorced, I met a, a man who didn't know anything about horses, but I still had horses. And I took him riding literally behind me on the horse. Mm -hmm. And he was a motorcycle guy and a hunter. And he said, that's, wow, that's good exercise. I said, (laughs) yes, it is. And he says, we should ride to Alaska on horseback. And little did he know, I'd been dreaming about taking a cross-country horseback trip since I was a little girl. I did not picture it taking it with a man. I pictured taking it either alone or with my girlfriend. But I know even in my 20s, I would not have had the courage to have done it by myself. Mm. So we we did do that. And we did a 3,000 mile horseback trip. And I, this is actually answering your question about horses continuing into adulthood. Oh, it's perfect. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But there is a reason for me telling it like this. So he took time away. His uh, bulldozing business was going out of business. It was in 1980. And uh, we had a terrible drought in the Midwest, which some people will remember way back then, and a bad recession. And so he was going out of business. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, you know, went to our pastor and said, you know, what, what do we do? You know, we want to take this trip, but we have these obligations. And he said, you know what, you take the trip and all that stuff will be here when you get back. So we talked to the bank and we, you know, we just arranged it. And we rode off. Uh, we were trailered to northern New Mexico. And rode north through uh, Colorado into Utah. Well, in Colorado, we went to the western slope of the Rockies, past the uh, uh, Uncompahgre Plateau on that. Utah, past the Flaming Gorge, almost all the way to Jackson, Wyoming, in the Wind River Range. And then all the way back to Nevada, Missouri, our, our home. On the trip, and within the first 500 miles, we discovered, and this is a longer story, which I won't go into, and how we discovered it, but we discovered that our saddles were hurting our horses' backs. Mm. We knew that the horse's behavior was perfect at home. It was getting worse and worse on the road, and we kind of assumed it was like the pine, and they weren't used to bears, and it was like all different And we discovered edema under the skin. So we had no open sores or anything like that. But we were taught how to palpate for edema under the skin, which would be the precursor to something much worse. That's a bruise, basically. And he, being an innate engineer, 
engineered a solution to the problem and we we fixed all of our pack saddles and his saddle with that solution and the horse's behaviors went back to perfect overnight wow so we had been punishing them disciplining them figuring trying to figure out what to do to correct their behavior uh, when really they were just suffering so we came home and patented our solution and started Orthoflex Saddle Company in a, we lived in a 22 by 20 foot garage that we made into an apartment and made saddles in the back barn. We, we lived in that little thing for five and a half years while we paid off the deficiency on his bulldozer debt and grew our company. So that was how we got into it. And I was involved in the saddle and fitting business for 20 years. So that kept me in it. And we first appealed to endurance racers because they were the only people who rode enough to know they had a problem. Mm. Cutters, rainers, ropers, jumpers, they all had problems because we could see it on their horses' faces and the way they carried themselves. But endurance racing was what we got into and kind of stayed into by sponsoring some racers. That is an amazing, amazing story. And you you sort of answered my next question, but I, you know, I love this. You went to your pastor and you had a conversation, like, how does this happen? He says, you know, do what you want to do. It'll still be there when you be- you get back, you made arrangements. And then you went on this amazing journey that you wanted to do together. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. it sparked a business idea. And sometimes it's like jumping off a hamster wheel can really inspire or lead you to what's next for you. And Absolutely. I, I, I just love that story. Thank you for sharing that with us. So you founded Orthoflex Saddle Company after uh, after this big ride. It, tell us a little bit more about the, you know, the kind of saddles you wound up developing and, and is the, the company is still active. Is that correct? No, it isn't. But I will explain how that went. That's a little bit part of the book and there'll mm-hmm. be more written about that in my next book, I hope. Uh, we'll see <laughs> how how that works out. But yes, we started in endurance racing. And the first step was we found somebody who made saddle trees who knew about saddle fit mm. in Tennessee. So we partnered with him. So we were able to design the trees the way we wanted them to. And the saddle itself is a tree that doesn't impinge on the horse. So it might have a little bit more twist and flare to the bars. So there's a wooden structure inside the saddle. There are bars that go on either side of the spine. And then a flat spring panel was mounted to the underside of the bars, very thin, ultimately uh, glass filled acetate called Delrin. Uh, And then it was graded with different layers so that the flexibility would be right from the mounting point. So what it did was that when the horse moves extends his front leg, that shoulder, as you probably know, goes back four to six inches, Mm -hmm. usually right ram into the fork English saddle or the front of a Western bar. So whenever the horse is trying to stride out, it's getting hit by the tree. And this can be a problem trying to go downhill if a horse doesn't want to go downhill straight or jigs a lot, or will stop stopping the calf, or he can't stand to turn right around a barrel often that's the problem. I started writing articles about this and at a the Purina Race of Champions, which was a big endurance race, I was telling the editor of Trailblazer Magazine many years ago, I said, this is what we've learned. She said, well, you write about it. And I wrote a five-part article about it for the Endurance Racing Magazine. And so we had people who were like 
quit riding their horse or just rode bareback until they got one of our saddles. They were that convinced. And then they did, uh, by and large, had good results from that. So the what happened was we just, we started in endurance, but then other fields, people would say, oh, would you make one for this field and that field? And so we ended up with, and this is not good for a business, I'll tell you that right now, 52 models of saddles. Oh, wow. So imagine the complexity in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. You might have 30 dies for one saddle to cut out the pieces, and they were all handmade uh, for the customer not for the horse, because again, it had to flex with him as he moved. Mm-hmm. And uh, after about 10 years at the height of our company, my husband had a really serious head injury and a motorcycle accident. And that messed everything up. And he is, I will say, doing great now and everything. But we were together another seven years. And a lot of things went kind of sideways during that healing process. It ended up, we, he ended up taking bankruptcy after our divorce. And Unfortunately, if you get us, we, we cash flowed all of our growth. So it was, we solved a problem, people had a problem. So we kept growing and growing and we never had to get any loans or investment, which is great. Mm-hmm. But at one point we got an SBA loan and a small business administration loan will uh, attach your, not just your property, but their, your intellectual property. Mm-hmm. So that got sold. I think it would be worth people knowing that when they get a loan, Find out if your intellectual property is being attached in that loan and really decide if that's right for you. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I love to tell people, uh, and I think this would be a great platform, there are a lot of mom and pop businesses out there. And unfortunately, the way our corporation was set up, he was the only corporate member. And I was younger and we trusted each other implicitly. So when it came time to decisions being made that that I disagreed with at that time after the accident, there was nothing I could do about it. Mm. So I think setting up your corporation, if you are a horse business person, so that you have say if something happens to the other person, and I don't mean just death, I think that's some really something important that I never heard before. And thank you for sharing that point of view, because these are, these are the conversations that sometimes, I mean, when you're young, you don't know, or when you're first starting out with anything and a new business or writing a book or creating a piece of music or what have you, you don't know about these things. And often, you know, you're so excited to get this thing done that there's a lot of things that get left on the table. And I think a lot of people who've waived those contracts know that, and, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you lose rights to a lot of different things. Like there's book authors who have lost, you know, their, international rights or their audiobook rights or you know movie and tv a big segment of of that doesn't go to them merch like all those things so i'm actually glad that you said that now and we're talking a lot about the saddles which are which is a phenomenal idea and obviously was successful and you've moved on and you've you've created some some new things here that we're going to talk about but like how do you handle or how did you handle the loss of something that was so important to you that you created in a partnership that kind of d- dissolved. How, how did you handle something like that? Yeah. Lots and lots of tears mm-hmm. and guilt. You know, you have to roll with a lot of stuff. And so to, you know, that, that was really super formative for me to lose the marriage, lose the company, l- lose my identity, lose Christmases together as a family. Just And I like to talk about that because how many of us are going through that kind of thing? Not the whole loss, but I mean, the loss of, 
of your family unit. So I mean, just really a lot of tears, but I think my, uh, my faith um, was a huge uh, thing for me. What was so cool about all of this happening was it was humbling. And I think I was humble before, but it was super duper humbling. And I was forced then the next job that I came across after surviving through a winter selling prearranged funerals door to door. Oh my. Yeah. Knock on the door and get people to let you in and look at caskets. (laughs) Okay. I, I could pretty much do anything if I could do that. I did get hives doing that. But anyway, I got through that and I found <laughs> some farmers who needed help marketing their, their heirloom crop. And I found a grant to pay me to help them do that and got the grant for them. Well, I got their product into 300 supermarkets around the Midwest in the first six months. And I'm like, oh, maybe it wasn't all Lynn. Maybe I w- wasn't an idiot and I helped do this thing. So the blessing, of course, is that I was able to support him all those years, but then I was able to be on my own and figure out, oh, you know what? I do have a brain in my head. Mm. And thank you for sharing that. I mean, that, that is, I think a lot of women go through that in their relationships or in business or, or in anything. And then when something dissolves, you, there is a time of self-doubt and reflection and crying and getting out of there, but then realizing on the other side of it, I am, you know, I'm not my partnership. I am not my business. I am brilliant and capable of generating whatever I set my mind to. And I I think a a lot of women go through that. And, and I'm so happy to hear that on the other side, you, you were very empowered because I mean, you look, they were about to talk about these amazing things that you've been up to since then. Did you want to comment on that a little bit? Well, I think the only thing that I wish, and I would love to say this to any woman who is embarking on a new life after a divorce or loss of any kind, and that is, I wish, and I don't know if I could have done this any differently, but I wish I had had more fun. Mm. I was always so worried about making enough money to make ends meet and working hard. I would just hope that anybody would somehow try to dial back that fear of losing your job or making enough money to make ends meet uh, if you didn't end up with a big settlement. So, which I didn't, obviously. Mm, Yeah. Great advice. Thank you for sharing that. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to move over a little bit and start talking about the journey that led to the book that you've written that you're here to discuss today. Talk about empowered. (laughs) Why in 2012 at the age of 54, did you decide to take a trip across country solo. (laughs) As you may remember, I said that I hadn't intended to take the first trip with a man Mm -hmm. and he kind of led the way. Uh, I always wanted to take it by myself or with a girlfriend. So I, at every life passage where I felt really super low, I just had this visual image of me riding down a, a road on a horse by myself, but I always pushed it away. You know, I can, I can never do that. You know, I've got kids or I'm married or whatever it is. I had a counselor who was also the pastor of my church and she said, you need to do this trip and you need to start talking about it because I, because I didn't have a horse at that time. And then it just so happened. I got the idea to call a buddy who used to work for me at Orthoflex Saddle Company and is a good mule rider and horse trainer. Um, And I said, Rick, I want to take this horseback trip. And he did not say, are you crazy? Why would you do that? He just said, 
I got a horse you can take. And so (laughs) that's that's a true friend. That's a true friend. And so um, he sold me Chief, uh, who is the subject of the book. And I had done this before, so I knew I could do it. Mm. And of course, the two things that a person is afraid of on a trip like this is, if you know, if you've done it before, is getting hit by a car. Mm. And that's pretty much it. Because you discover when you put yourself out there vulnerably that people are wonderful. Mm. We all are kind of brainwired to help each other. That is how we have anthropologically, uh, through evolution, we have survived as a species by having relationships to keep ourselves safe. And so having relationships and helping each other, I think is totally brainwired into us. If you quit listening to cable news (laughs) long enough and actually get out of the house. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just like you and me, you're, you're meeting all these wonderful people and like, Mm -hmm. how is it that you haven't run across a mass murder? It's because there's not very many of them, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah. So I um, got the horse and my husband now, my third husband, uh, sorry to say, but he, I'm happy to say, because he's a great guy. He was worried about me taking it because he thought maybe I would not really want to be around him anymore, that I would get swept up into that and be this adventure or whatever. And I said, no, you know, it's not that much fun. I've done it before. It's really, really hard work. (laughs) It's like not fun at all. So anyway, he says, no, you need to do it now. You got to quit talking about it. You need to just do it. So, so that's what I did. I only had chief for two months and I knew from experience that you really can't plan a long distance trip like this. If you are not trying to promote yourself or something, Mm. you know, um, there are people who want to do a trip and it's kind of an ego thing. I want to go from this coast to this coast, or I want to promote this message. Um, and that was not what I wanted. I wanted that experience of being alone with my horse and exploring my beloved Midwest. So for that reason, I did not seriously plan my route. I thought, okay, well, I'll take off from his pasture and I'm going to do a loop around Missouri. And if I'm gone three months, that's the max three weeks, possibly, or three days if I completely failed. So I, I took off and rode South and then I rode into Missouri. And as I'm thinking about riding a circle around Missouri, I thought I'd cut over into the Ozarks. And I knew better, but there's Truman Lake, Stock, uh, Lake of the Ozarks, and Stockton Lake kind of all along the western side of Missouri. And when they created these rec- recreational lakes, they put in dams. Mm-hmm. And the dams made all the tributaries big and got rid of a lot of tiny tributaries that we could easily go over. So consequently, there would be long bridges that I would have to go over, which are dangerous. I don't want to be on a long bridge with a horse, you know. Mm -hmm. So I ended up riding straight south. Well, Carly, what that ended up doing was taking me right back to where I was at high school, where I divorced my childhood sweetheart. So I ended up riding right back into that area and right back to Nevada, Missouri, where our business failed. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So, So little did I know. Uh, you know what? Those people don't care. I mean, that was a long time ago. It's like, go do your life. People don't care what's going on with us. That's the, the big <laughs> message. And I ran into so many people I knew and they were so kind. And of course, they understood the bind I was in getting divorced after the head injury and all that. And it was the most healing time <laughs> 
you know, to kind of realize that. So it's, it's okay. You know, it's probably okay if you go meet the thing that you're most in angst about. Mm-hmm. Very healing. So, it, yeah. It's almost like you were led there, yeah. you know, to resolve some of the things that you're hanging on to and to get that clarity that, you know, we worry so much about what other people are thinking. Other people are not thinking about us. They're doing the same thing we're doing, thinking and worrying about themselves. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a really great point. So when you set off on this, did you plan on, on writing about the experience? And you want to talk a little bit about um, the big quiet one woman's horseback ride home and explain where, where the inspiration for this popped up from? I also, being uh, genetically a horse lover, I am, was genetically a writer from the time I was little. So I knew I wanted to write this book and I knew I wanted to try to myth, bust myths about rural America and about what people are like and what religion they are and what political party they are. I wanted to write about how they are the same as city people. They just usually have a little more space around them and uh, about the beauty of the Midwest. I mean, just the physical beauty of the landscape. So that, that was what I, what I am passionate about. And that's what I wanted to write about. So we can talk about the difficulty of figuring out the structure for it. Mm. and trying to rein it in. But that's why I wanted to write a book. And I did from before the trip. So you knew you were going to write it before you took the trip. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. Now, you just mentioned the difficulty of structuring it. Talk to us about the writing process. I'll just start by saying I had notebooks that are kind of shaped like this, long, Mm -hmm. oblong spiral notebooks. And I wrote in those every day he was grazing or at night, I wrote all those notes. So I had raw footage, which were generally visual impressions more than anything and also spiritual realizations too Mm -hmm. I probably didn't try to start writing for a year and I started trying to write chapters and I did that throughout a year or two but I was also working at the end of that process I was very disappointed in what I had written and I got I just completely gave up And I took a job as a grant writer for an inner city nonprofit. So grant writing has been something I've done. I would not recommend trying to be a creative writer and a grant writer in the same life. Sounds challenging. (laughs) (laughs) It was like awful. But I was there only six months. I I think I did them a lot of good. I got them organized and so forth. And I just told the boss, I said, you know, I I have to go write my book. Mm. And I came home and I started writing again. And the chapters were, I thought, phenomenal. And my husband, being a um, pretty acclaimed literary journal editor for many, many years at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, uh, he was he just kept telling me, you keep going. Don't give up. This is going to be good. And I think part of my angst about it was I wasn't understanding the structure. But the thing that I would advise uh, writers is go with the energy. So there was be a vignette that I just wanted Carly Cade to read. I just want someone in the world to know this happened. I want them to meet these people and see this place. And then I would just go for it. I was fortunate because we knew uh, Robert Day, who wrote the the uh, Last Cattle Drive, which was a major bestseller back in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And he sat me down. He read what I'd written. And he talked to me about structure. And he said, it's a roadshow. It's about the horse going and you going every day. 
which is like the last cattle drive was a road show. And so was Huckleberry Finn, in a mm-hmm. sense. They were mm-hmm. making that journey. And then in between those um, days of this happened this day would be me kind of riffing on my discovery, what came to me about that, or remembering something. And that's kind of where some of the, the personal stuff from my past might come up. So that really helped me to structure it. And then it was a matter of just getting rid of any story that would seem too repetitive, which I'm sure I should have gotten rid of more of those vignettes. But anyway, I did the best I could. Well, that's fascinating. I, I love that that journey or the moving forward down the road. I, and, and then the the awakenings that you had every time you, you paused. I love that. Did you have any like troubles sharing like these very personal things that happened for you through your memoir? Or did you find it cathartic? Uh, you know, I am a little allergic to people who write for catharsis. So I, I don't think I would say that was it at all. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I probably shared just a small portion. Mm-hmm. But you've heard of people who are oversharers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I might be one of those. <laughs> so it didn't bother me. Uh, you know, I felt kind of shame and guilt for some of my past for long enough that I think I was kind of like over it. And if it could make someone else feel better about themselves or about what they've experienced or me, but maybe make someone else feel superior. That's also good. <laughs> this risky part about that, writing that personal stuff and the way I tried to do it was to not overdo it. You have to, as a writer, have composted and digested all that. And I think you got to come at it with a loving attitude, not with an ax to grind or with a poor me, because the writing's going to be crummy. It's never going to get published. So I've really been kind of waiting until I've got it composted a little bit better, which I think I'm there. I think I'm there actually. Yeah. So it wasn't that hard to, to write some of this stuff. Oh, that, I love what, how you just summarize that. That's lovely composting it and coming to it from a place of love. Uh, and 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 that's what they say about storytelling. Like humans have been storytellers since we evolved or since we were plopped on this planet. And that's how we learn. I mean, one person can't have all the experiences that there are to have, but there are there people can find similarities in your story that the story that you're sharing. And I think that is very brave to write a memoir and open up about these things for others to learn from, right? I and and that's why humans tell stories. So it's like it's it's I think it's fascinating. And I Thank you for sharing your journey so other people, other women, other couples, other horse lovers can learn from your experience, right? Whether they want to take a long distance ride with their horses or whether they're having a challenge in their relationships or if they're looking to restore their faith in themselves, like all these things. So I, that's how we learn, I, I think. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That really makes me feel good. That was, that was one of my major, main goals. Perfect. You did it. I mean, I, I think people that, that share that, that information and write memoirs are very, very brave. I, I always enjoy memoirs. I always get something. How did taking this ad- adventure change your view of building relationships with animals? I think what I got more than anything was what Ray Hunt and Tom Dorrance and Cal Middleton are trying to remind us. And that is, who is that being? Mm. What is their personality? What are they needing? What can we do to make them comfortable? I mean, all a horse is ever trying to do is become comfortable. So I think that I just ended up taking him as he was and 
you know, things like me putting up my tent the first time, he nearly pulled a you know steel fence out of the ground. <laughs> uh, and then after that on the trip, that was his home. Mm-hmm. I could pop it up next to him and he was like, you know, fall asleep. So it was just exposure, exposure, exposure to build that relationship with horses. So I would say that to anyone, that if you really want to learn what it's like to have a relationship with a horse, aside from somehow hanging out with Ray Hunt the rest of your life, is to take a long distance trip and don't don't take your type A job with you. So if you take lessons, if you ride, you show and you're doing it like you would do your job, you know, for the same reasons you would do your job, probably never going to have the right kind of bond that will be lasting and keep you safe. So that's what I, and the other point I would like to come up with is just, to me, a horse's heart is like this giant electromagnet, right? There is some sort of electrical resonance that occurs from just standing next to one or uh, imagine wrapping your legs around it, right? Mm -hmm. There is, especially if you get away from the barn and you're riding out, it's the same kind of resonance that you might get if you're sitting and looking at a lake or watching a fire burning. It's that. And I think that that gets us close to creation. Mm. And creation could be, you know, given many names. But I think that for me, what it did to me, and this is kind of getting into another one of your possible questions, but after one week of being in the wind and the hot sun and the weather and not knowing where I was going to camp that night, I just became nonverbal. And week two, I realized that I was just following my instinct, Mm. that I would just do something and it would be the right way to turn, or I would knock on this door and it would work out. And I wasn't planning. And I am a planner. That's my job is to plan for agriculture producers. And then by the third week, I had just an emotional experience riding past a cemetery, which I'll let you read about in the book. But this sense of protection descended upon me. Wow. I can't explain it other than to say, you know, I've always kind of thought of it as a spiritual relationship, kind of being something around me or out there I'm relating to. But this wasn't like that. This was like the physical world. Every blade of grass, the wind, the sky, the dirt, the horse, everything was just suffusing me with complete protection. Wow. (laughs) It was wild. And, you know, uh, once you know something, you can't unknow it. Mm -hmm. You know how that is? Mm -hmm. So it didn't mean that I didn't worry about, will I find a good place to camp tonight? I was always scared that I wouldn't have water and, you know, what would I do and all that. But I think actually it didn't make me not scared, but it did kind of hone the week two's thing. And that is my instinct was so good because I had an experience where there was one potentially bad guy who approached me and I I knew, I knew it from a quarter of a mile away. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that that bond with horses helps you get in contact with whatever it is that our prophets who went for 40 days and 40 nights or the Buddha who walked forever helps us tap into that. Oh my gosh, I have goosebumps. That's amazing. And well, you know, and it's it's almost like remembering that 
we are beings, we are animals, like we, you know, but we have this gift of speech, you know, but we also, I mean, in, in our real, like in our houses, in our walls, in our buildings, in our businesses, we don't have to utilize our nature gifts all that much. And that's, you were speaking to, that's that, like that, that feeling, that thing we get as horse people being around our horses, but a lot of people don't have exposure to that. But if you quiet the mind, you quiet yourself, you get yourself out into to nature and you let it happen and you go nonverbal, you, you can have those experiences, these uplifting experiences or this experience where like your animal being actually connects and guides you if you listen. Right. And I, I love that you shared that. Thank you. Do you agree with that? <laughs> Absolutely. I like the way you pl- put that too. I can't wait to listen back to it. because <laughs> I want to write that down. <laughs> Is there anything that you wish you had known when you started out on this trip? Uh, you know, or any advice you would give to someone starting off? Yes. And this is advice for a life. And that is, I wish I had had more confidence in myself. Mm. I wish I had known how capable I was. I didn't really tell too many people I was doing this. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to promote myself or advertise that much. But if I had had more confidence, I would have probably told more people. I might've created more social media that might've helped me publish my book. If I had created more buzz and more following there's a part of me that says I might've had more fun if I had had a horse that wasn't quite as reactive, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm s- sort of that person too. You know, why am I criticizing him for being reactive? <laughs> and here's the other thing, advice for anybody wanting to take a horseback trip. You've got to have a horse with a big motor. Mm. I mean, I kept him moving the first four hours of every day and you cannot have a cold blooded deadhead and and take a a trip like this so you really need a guy with some real personality and some real thoughts of his own and well at least no bear is going to catch up with us (laughs) yeah Yeah. i love that too how old was uh how old was chief was he a young he was a younger or he was he older he's he was 12 12 okay so he was like right in the middle there uh and he was reactive. I sometimes think though, you know, even the, I feel like because he was reactive, it built, it did build the confidence that you would wish you had had going into it. Like the whole trip built your confidence, but it's like, do you think that he was the right horse? Like, because it, it what he was doing kind of had to make you deal and cope and get present to his behaviors that maybe scared you a little bit, but in, but built your confidence. But do you, I mean, I feel like it's kind of like a teeter totter sort of thing. And there's mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle. <laughs> That's a really good question. And I, it brings me to this philosophical thing I want to say, and I have no PhD to back this up, <laughs> but I don't think there are a whole heck of a lot of accidents in the world. Mm. He was a great guy and he was like sweet on the ground and he was the best horse with Girl Scouts. And, <laughs> and he just loved to stand around and listen to people talk. I mean, his only real flaw, if you could call it that, was just that he was hypervigilant when he was moving through a strange territory. Mm-hmm. And they're, that's what they're designed for, right? <laughs> you know, to be hypervigilant and look out for their well-being. And, and in doing that, he was looking out for your well-being. He, he was protecting you, even if it was scaring you. Like that's what, yeah. when they're doing that. That's what they're doing. They're like protecting themselves and the person on their back. <laughs> he was brainwired. I took him away from all horses in his herd. I mean, that is like, that's cruel, really, if you think about it. Horses, I mean, when you see these Westerns where the guy's going to ride off across the 
uh, the desert and go to Mexico by himself. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll bet you that horse has all of his buddies off camera over there and he's happily going toward his buddies. <laughs> he's going toward he the is herd. not going away from everybody. You know, it's just <laughs> they really need to be with their with their clan. And when we got back, he just leapt into the air and go found his best buddy in the pasture Aww. and rolled and he was so happy to be home. So wow. you know, I took good care of him and I sprayed him up and I all of that, but um it was a lot to ask of any horse. Mm -hmm. And he did it for you. And I love that though, too, because there was a, an awakening of your appreciation of him as a being, not only in, in what he was doing for you, but also in what asking him to do this took him away from, you know, that's like right. really, really great noticing. Yeah, that's what Tom Dorrance would have told us. What mm -hmm. does this horse need to be comfortable? He's not saying what do all horses need? Here's how I'm going to impose my will. And the last thing I'd like to comment on about that is I ran across a couple super good horsemen. Uh, one I knew, one I didn't really know. And they both were, one was in his 70s. The other one was in his 50s, I'd guess. And they both said, because I was asking him, am I being too easy on him or be, am I being too hard on him? Because mm -hmm. I was really kind of confused about it. And they both said, I used to force my horse to do things, my horses to do things. And now I let them look and I let them get to the point where they're ready to do things. Mm. That was helpful. So it's like asking as, as opposed to, and giving them a time and space as opposed to forcing them through something. That's powerful. And they both said it, both horsemen said it, which I think exactly is, the same way. Yeah, I love that. So talk to us about, uh, I want to move a little bit into a couple of, you know, author, author questions. Like talk to us about publishing this book. I sent the uh, proposal and sample chapters after it was all completed, which most people would never spend the time to do that, to probably 60 agents and publishers and was rejected by all of them. And the University of Kansas uh, book author said, you should talk to Tracy Million Simmons at Meadowlark Books. She uh, specializes in books by Kansas authors uh, or uh, books about Kansas topics. So I contacted her. I sent it to her and she loved it. That was how I met my publisher. And working with her was a dream. She really did love the book. She loved the writing in it. And she did help me kind of pare it back a little bit. But she didn't really do a whole heck of a lot of editing other than really super good copy editing. So the process with her was great. And my husband, having been in publishing and being an editor for 46 years, he was very opinionated about how it should look. And so she, God bless her, let us do whatever we wanted with how the book was laid out. Oh, that's and, lovely and lucky. That doesn't often happen when you, when you work with a publisher. That's great. Right. I went to a um, writer's conference in New York City. Bob sent me to it, my husband. And Robert Stewart is his name from UMKC. The magazine was New Letters that he's editor emeritus of. And he um, sent me to this uh, conference and I did speed dating with some agents. So they pair you up with agents in New York and you do the speed dating with them. Both of the two that I got said they wanted to see sample of the book. But the first question both of them had was, how big is your following? Isn't that interesting? The days of just being a writer and focusing on a gorgeous sentence uh, are gone. Yeah, they really are. Unless you're established. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. I was just having a conversation with this uh, with somebody about this the other day. It's like now you have to bring 
a following or a presence or, or a brand with you behind your books. And, and you mentioned a couple of things, like how wonderful are author partnerships? And that's why I believe in our authors uniting and that other authors are in our competition because another author friend directed you to the publisher that was right for you. And I love that you said, you actually shared that the agent said, what is your following? That is something mm-hmm. all people getting ready to write books really need to realize is that it is part of the mix now. For you, what's the very best part about being an author? And then on the flip side of that, what's what's been the most difficult part? For me, the most difficult thing is because my retirement isn't set, mm. I do feel worried about spending hours and hours writing when I don't know what the financial outcome will be. The best part about being a writer is spending the hours and hours in writing. <laughs> so to me, the best part is when I have an image that I want, something I want to get across to somebody else, and I find that amazing, different, fresh, unique way of describing something that, that really puts them there. And also, as I'm writing along, And getting to the end, toward the end of a chapter, and it's kind of, I can just feel it starting to wrap up and realizing that something universal is going to tie it all together. And the only way I would have found that wonderful ending was by writing. Oh, magical. Yeah. So writing's it for you on both Mm -hmm. sides, on both sides. What's next? What are you curious about? Do you have another book in the works? I do. I do. Well, I'll go ahead and hold up the current book. Yes. I forgot to do that earlier. This is the current book, The Big Quiet, One Woman's Horseback Ride Home. And I am, uh, I have a manuscript of poems ready to, almost ready to go. It's called Points of the Horse. Each poem is about a minute part of a horse whether it's the ear or the chestnut or the coronary band or whatever. And it was a writing uh, assignment from a teacher. And it became, I just loved writing these very minute and it could only be this long. It couldn't, the half of one page is the the longer it could be. So I I am working on that. And then I wrote a full manuscript about uh, saddle fitting. What we learned over 20 years of saddle fitting with 25,000 horses, more than that. and. I originally wrote it and I looked at every study uh, done on the thoracolumbar spine of the horse's back from the before 1900 to about 1987. And then recently I went back and looked at every study that's been done on the horse's back from 87 to now. And now I, I want to rewrite that whole book. And Bob has suggested that I bring a lot of my other experiences and maybe the first horseback trip into it. So it might not be a scholarly how-to book. It may give me the structure, I haven't figured out quite how, to bring in all of this other, other stuff because it's just a miracle. I mean, nobody talked about pounds per square inch when I first started writing about it. Nobody talked about impingement of the shoulders. And weirdly enough, uh, people still don't really get the anatomy of the saddle as it relates to the anatomy of the horse. So that is, I think that I can relate impingement in personal life and on the horse's back somehow. That's what I'm excited about. Oh, I love that. Right. I mean, what I like, and I I think he's onto something because I I love this. It's like giving the information to people who may not know it and sharing that knowledge uh, that scientific stuff through personal experience and storytelling. That is a very good way to connect this information because 
I know saddle fit is like a thing and so important, but I was not educated as in it as a young person. And as a younger person who was getting into horses, I certainly wouldn't go and pick a book on saddle fitting, a nonfiction book on saddle fiction or saddle fitting off the wall, like a how-to thing. Like that wouldn't, I would want a story. I mean, both are important, but I feel like you can reach a lot more people through the storytelling aspect of a memoir and winding all this information in. Because every time I read a fiction book, even though it's not real life, right? It's fictional characters. I always get something that something happened between the characters that I can apply to my life. I have learned something, even if it's fiction. So, or even if it's a story, you know, so I think that's fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. You're actually putting it into even better context for me because I wasn't sure how to do it, but that's really helpful to me for you to say that. Thank you. So by my, I want to wrap up with this question and everyone has a different answer to this one too, but Lisa, what does creativity mean to you? I find that an easy uh, question to answer. I think it goes back to that quiet or that resonance with the deeper part, because, you know, when you're doing something creative, generally time sort of stops and somehow you've allowed yourself to stop doing other busy work. And it's that moment when you feel like whatever you're doing is the most important thing in the world and you're kind of transforming the way you're thinking or what you're doing or whatever the media medium is. So I think getting to that meditative place in the process of doing whatever you're doing, that's creative creativity to me. Oh, that's my favorite part. I love that you just shared that. Yes, I love that. It's a flow state or something where you just don't even feel like you're there and the time is flying and you're just happy and all these thoughts aren't running through your head. I love I love hearing that that you have that experience too. That's very, very special. Great answer. Lisa, I've really, really enjoyed talking with you today. I look forward to you know continuing our author friendship. But uh, in the meantime, will you share with listeners where they can find more information about you and your books? Yes, um, they can find Lisa D. Stewart Books and Products on Facebook. They can go to lisadstewart.com and learn more about me and read some of my blogs. And you can also just go to Amazon and order the book there if you're interested in it. They'll have it, and it really doesn't matter to me as an author whether you you know purchase it from me or Amazon or for one one of your favorite independent bookstores would be ideal. But do what's best for you. Those are those are places you can find me. Excellent, and I will link to the places where you can find Lisa in her show notes, and she's shared some really wonderful pictures of herself and her horse that you can also take a look at there with the show notes. Lisa, thank you so much for the gift of your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you ever so much for having me, Carly. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and riding, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. 
I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.